Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and we have got a loaded show coming up for you. we got four segments, tons of information, tons of stuff that we want to talk about in food today. So we're going to jump off with our first segment. Today, we are talking about pizza on the grill. Ah, this is a question. It is summer where we are in New England in the United States. I realize that we have people who listen to our podcast who where it's not summer, where they're going into winter right now. But in the United States, we're going into summer. And we want to talk about how to grill pizza because it's actually a little bit controversial. And if you've never done it, you should try it. I should first say before we start this that we did write a book called of course we did of course we did called pizza grill it bake it love it oh this is a while back but we did write a book about mm, it takes every pizza and it either makes it on the grill or in the oven which is kind of an interesting concept for a cookbook you know that you can choose your way but we have a lot to say about grilling pizza we do and let me say right up front that there are basically two ways to grill a pizza okay talk about what the first way is the first way is the pizza stone method all right what do you mean by a pizza stone well you know like a bread stone a pizza stone one of those high temperature ceramic stones that you use to bake bread on and it will require you to have some other equipment you will need a pizza peel which is one of those paddles that help you transfer the pizza Mm. to the stone Mm. and off the stone Mm. Mm. Um, but you have to have a stone and the best results are when your grill is big enough so that you so a gas grill so that you could have the fires the flames up around the stone but not directly under or if you're using a charcoal grill to build the fire on the perimeter of the grill so the stone is is sort of an indirect heat yeah, so that's right. what you have to do yeah so and let me also say that because Bruce does all the grilling in our house let me also say that I know you also have to have a metric ton of flour or semolina flour or something to keep the stuff from sticking to the peel so that you can get it from the peel onto the pizza stone. We should make a shout out here when we're talking about grilling pizzas to our friends who made a very keen gadget for Weber charcoal grills, right? They created something called Kettle Pizza. And it was really cool. It's this metal ring that sits in between the bottom of the kettle grill and the lid, lifting the lid up. Mm. And in the ring is a slot that you slide your pizza into. And built into the bottom of the ring is a pizza stone that sits over your your charcoal mm-hmm. and a place in the back for wood so flames shoot up over the it top. Literally Very makes cool. the, it literally makes the – it's like an old Tuscan pizza oven. It makes the flames come up under yeah. the top of your Weber grill. You can't now touch the top of your Weber <laughs> grill. But it turns the whole thing into this giant kind of Tuscan pizza oven. It's a really cool little gadget. And it's from where? Is Kettle it Pizza. Kettle pizza. Kettle pizza. Right. Okay. So you get this stone. Do you have to heat the stone up? So here's the thing. Just like Anytime you use a stone, whether you're baking bread in your oven or outside or making the pizza, the stone needs a good 45 minutes to get super hot to reach temperatures. You're going to have to keep the charcoal going or the wood fire going, which is why I love to do this on the gas grill. And I just put it in the middle. I put the side burners on, close the top. I can get my grill to 400 degrees, which is all it needs to be for this pizza. And the stone gets super hot. Then you just build the pizza the way you normally would. Yeah, you build it, you put it on that peel, again, just a ton of flour to get it off the field. I think you always use cornmeal or semolina, I like right? semolina, and I dip, and when I'm spreading out the dough, first I take my ball of dough and I dip it in semolina, so the bottom is coated completely. 
then I can press out the dough because I don't trust myself to toss it in the air and it'll like land on my head or in the sink. <laughs> so I press the dough down on the peel and I spread it out into its circle. And before I start putting the toppings on, I shake the peel to make sure that there was enough right. semolina and the dough's loose. Now, let me say that Bruce makes his own dough. But if you don't know this, this is a really great trick if you want to make pizza at home. If you go to most uh, smaller pizza parlors, and I don't mean the big chains like, um, let's say, California Pizza Kitchen or Pizza Inn or Pizza Hut or any of those. I mean, you know, a smaller uh, pizza place. You can often buy raw dough straight from them. When we lived in New York, Bruce did this all the time. We would walk past one of the billions of famous Ray's, Ray's famous, <laughs> Ray's famous, original. original famous, original <laughs> Ray's famous, all those <laughs> different restaurants that are actually trying to riff off each other. Anyway, Bruce would walk into one of them and he just asked to buy a one pound dough and they would sell it to him because of course they've got it in balls right there. It's all ready to go. And they were, oh, the first time I did it, they seemed surprised. They were, right. Because I don't think anyone had ever done that right. but me and all the years they'd been there. Right. But it's really amazing. You could do that. And I've never tried to do that from a place like American Flatbread, which no. there's one near here. My guess is they might even there because they also have big trays of dough. They may charge you the full prices of a pizza. But yeah, they probably true. would give it they to you. They didn't at this the pizza place, the originals, Ray's Famous or Ray's Original Famous, or whichever one you went in. They didn't in New York. They charged you just a couple bucks yeah, for the dough. Yeah, they did. But you can always go in and ask if there's if they've got dough ready. So, okay. So, now you've got the stone hotted up. You've got the pizza made on the peel. You get it off onto the um, stone. And now what? So, now I close the grill and I let that pizza cook about 12 minutes. Now, your, how long you cook it is going to be the quality of your grill, how hot it is, and, and your taste. Mark some, likes pizza. How, Mark? Oh, I like my pizza so charred. It is literally incinerated. Uh, there's a local uh, place where we live in New England, a local pizza joint with a coal-fired pizza oven. And when we go there, they make super, super thin crust, which is what I like, basically matzah as crust. <laughs> and they make super thin crust. And I always say to the waiter, can you burn it? Can you ask him to burn it? And at this point, she or he, the waiter knows exactly what I'm talking about. So they say, <laughs> now that guy's here that wants his pizza burned. So I want my pizza burned all around the edges. Uh, you know, you, you, this is not uh, anything that you could tell necessarily by timing. If, if I ever could, I would write a cookbook with no timing in it. <laughs> Because I think timing is the most absurd thing. I just got in a Twitter conversation with somebody this week who was talking about, well, you know, in the Instant Pot Bible, we have a hash recipe. And we say that you got to boil the liquids off at the end after you open the pressure. And we say in the book it takes three to five minutes. And he wrote me on Twitter and said it took eight minutes when I did it. And I thought, well, you know, gosh, I mean, your vegetables may have released more moisture than mine did into the hash. Your potatoes may have had more moisture, residual moisture in them than mine did. This all gets Released your under pressure. Hotter. Yeah, and it depends on the heat of the pot and how you're actually your instant pot works. And I thought again to myself, I just wish I could write a recipe without any timings whatsoever. I know in pressure cooking you have to list a time, but in terms of cooking in a grill, you gotta watch it. Wow, I love this idea. A whole cookbook, a cookbook without timings, oh, recipes without timings. It's my dream in life. It's also my dream to write a metric cookbook, but that's a different matter entirely. Okay, so. No timings, <laughs> all grams. Wow. <laughs> We'd sell a copy. That's really good. <laughs> if we ever got a yeah, publisher. It, if your it. mom will buy it. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so that's the pizza's home method, but there's a second way you can actually grill a pizza on a grill, right? The other way is a little more tricky. 
and that's that's my direct grilling method and this is where you're going to oil up your dough after you sort of spread it down right rather than putting semolina i just rub a little bit of olive oil on it and then i put it put it on the dough or on the peel i put it on no you don't need a peel for this one you don't need a peel at the start you'll need a peel at the end so I'm going to spread my dough out into a circle as thin as I can. I'm going to give it a little olive oil, and then I'm going to put it olive oil side down directly over the heat. And this is a medium heat, not a high heat. So you pick it up like a wet kitchen yeah, towel. Yeah, like a, that's a and great way to put it. You pick it up like a wet kitchen towel, and you put it on the grill grate, directly on the grate, oiled side Oiled down. side down so that it will not stick when you then go to turn it. So it's going to bake only about two or three minutes with the grill closed. Then you're going to use tongs to gently flip it. So now the cooked side is up and it won't stick now. Can you use a peel at this point? Uh, You don't need to because you really want to flip it. So the point is flipping this. Okay. Now you're going to spread a little bit of sauce, put a little bit of cheese and cover it. But you don't want to put toppings that need a lot of time because this is only going to get another two or three minutes or it'll burn. Right. So I like to put a little bit of sauce, a little bit of cheese, and that's really it. This isn't great for... This is for like margaritas, margarita pizzas, and stuff like that. This is for... This is not for fancy raclette pizzas with potatoes sliced on them <laughs> mm-hmm. and raclette cheese and pickles and all that stuff. No. By the way, may I say, a raclette pizza with with little slices of pickles, raclette cheese, and sliced potatoes is a delicious thing. And so is the famous barbecued Thai chicken pizza mm. from California Pizza Chicken. Mm. All you got to do for that is instead of marinara, you put some jarred Thai peanut sauce, put some shredded rotisserie chicken, and I actually think they use Jarlsberg on it, and it just it's really good. Yeah, well, see, and again, these are easy toppings for the direct grilling right. method as opposed to the pizza stone method. And I will say... That if given my choice, I prefer the pizza stone method because it gets the bottom for me crunchier because you have to watch with the burning on the direct method. I I always end up with a little doughiness in the center of the crust. So it's not 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 in the middle of the pizza, but like between the bottom (laughs) layer and the top layer. It's always just a little doughy for me. But I'm the guy that likes my pizza burned. So what can I tell you? I want to say one more thing about pizza dough. If you don't live where there's a pizza parlor where you can go in and buy it. A lot of supermarkets sell one-pound balls of pizza dough, both regular and whole wheat. And in our local supermarket, they're in the deli area where they sell uh, rotisserie chickens and fried chicken and stuff like that. So if you can't find it, go to that deli and ask them if they have it because they might have it over there. Now we got segment number two. What's up, Mark? Here's our one-minute cooking tip for this episode. Get your coffee beans out of the freezer. What are you doing putting coffee beans in the freezer? When you walk into Starbucks, do you see big freezer cases of beans? When you walk into your favorite coffee roaster, do you see big bags of of beans in a freezer somewhere? But doesn't the cold preserve it? No, it does not. In fact, what happens is two things. One moisture is locked inside the beans and frozen so that when it is thawed, it has actually degraded the roasted beans slightly. And two, the freezing process turns off certain flavor nids in coffee. That is that which makes coffee taste like coffee. And your coffee will be duller and blander. Get it out of the freezer. Get it out 
of the refrigerator, put it on your counter and use it. If you're not using enough coffee to um, use down that amount of coffee in, let's say, three weeks, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe two weeks, three weeks, something like that, then buy less coffee. Don't put it in the fridge and don't put it in the freezer. We're going to go on to segment three, department three of our department store of a podcast. And today we are doing a food find. Usually at this point we do an interview, but we decided to drop in a different idea here. And this is a food find. So what is our food find? This week the food find is Miso Maru from Brooklyn Miso Maru. Yes, this Miso Maru, we should explain, is a thing. Miso Maru is a little ball, like a light, slightly larger than a golf ball size of miso, often blended with um, powdered dashi and mixed in with herbs. You can have kelp, you can have seaweed, um, ginger. You could flavor them any way you want so that when you drop them in hot water, you have instant miso. Think of it as a miso bomb. Mm. You put you put boiling water or you put it in a bowl that is, of course, water heat safe. And then you pour in the boiling water. It dissolves. And suddenly you have this gorgeous miso soup. So what we'd like to talk about is this place, Brooklyn Miso Maru. Let me explain that. Brooklyn, just like what you think, B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N. Miso, M-I-S-O, Maru, M A. Ru.com. And the reason we want to talk about Brooklyn Miso Maru is because the presentation they offer. It's fabulous. Their Miso Maru, first of all, the little balls coated in seaweed and all sorts of herbs look like fabulous high-end chocolates, right? In little Dried cups. Flowers, mm -hmm. herbs. They're beautiful and they come in these beautiful boxes. And we should say we have no relation to no. this company. We know we, we we don't know the owners. They're not paying us, nor did they give us any for free. Not at all. But I want to tell you that go out and look at BrooklynMisoMaru.com because this is a fine house gift. It looks like you're bringing a fine box of chocolates. And when you open it up, these beautiful things in this gorgeous packaging are these miso balls. And people can make their own miso soup. I think it is the perfect summer house gift. Oh, it's absolutely fabulous. But if you refer to them as miso bombs, make sure that the people you give it to don't make the mistake and think they're bath bombs. The oh. last thing you want to do is drop one of these oh. in your bath. Well, I might want to take a bath of miso soup. <laughs> it depends With on... kelp and dried flowers <laughs> and dashi. So you could be good for my skin. So you could smell like smoked tuna. Oh, <laughs> don't I already? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. We, me, Brooklyn Miso Maru is, uh, they, they're just doing a bang-up job in their packaging. And honestly, as a house gift for summer this summer, if you're going to people's homes, if you're visiting for dinner parties, whatever you do, Doing, I would really recommend checking these people out and getting yourself a couple boxes, keeping around. Now, I should tell you, they're drop shipped cold and you have to keep them in the fridge and they recommend that you use them up within about three weeks because this is a live fermented pro uh, product. Yeah. So they recommend you get them, you get them, unwrap them, put them in your fridge and then keep them for about three weeks. But listen, the number of darn parties I go through... <laughs> I could go through quite a few boxes of these. But as Mark said at the beginning of this segment, 
there are plenty of YouTube videos showing you how to make them. So if you decide you want to be really creative and pull mm. a Martha Stewart on it, mm. you can make your own. You can mm. buy beautiful little gift boxes and you can bring your own Misumaro, which is, as Mark said, a fabulous house gift. Before we get to this next segment of the podcast, subscribe. We could use a rating. We could use a like. We could use you to say something about how much you love it. Drop down to the bottom of the Apple menu, and you'll see a way to write a comment. Thank you so much for that. So we're up with our last segment in our podcast. And this is our segment about what's making us happy this week in food. And again, person, I have no idea what we're going to say. And I'm going to start off. Yay, Marco's first. <laughs> <laughs> what's making me happy this week is homemade Worcestershire sauce. Ah. ah. Did you know that you can make your own Worcestershire sauce? We have a video for that on YouTube. And I make Worcestershire sauce by the gallons for Bruce. I make it in giant batches. I think the recipe that's on cooking with Bruce and on YouTube. I triple that when I make it. I make it in giant jars and Worcestershire sauce that you make yourself is not like any other Worcestershire sauce in existence. Why is it so different? Tons of anchovies, tons of soy, tons of umami flavor, lots of spices. You make it, you have to ripen it in the fridge for a couple months. You pour it into a big glass container and ripen it. You have to caramelize sugar. And so get you're it cooking in there. this and then you're cooking this yep. all together. Yep. You cook it on the stove top. You caramelize sugar. You stir in the caramelized sugar until it's dissolved. You wait a little till it cools down a little bit. You pour it into a giant jar and then you ripen it in your fridge for a couple months months this would be a project to start now for christmas gifts even mm. but let me say the reason it's making me happy is we had more weekend guests and we did a whole mixed grill of various grass-fed meats that we had bought at a local farm one night for dinner all kinds of steaks and bruce marinated them in this homemade worcestershire sauce and it is so tasty and there's not much more to it than that right than just putting me uh, putting a little Worcestershire sauce in a bowl and tossing around steaks in it yeah that's it if you want to add a little olive oil to it you can if you want it hotter you can put some pepper but you just need the Worcestershire and then we serve little cruets of Worcestershire on the table mm. as well to drizzle over everything and if you make your homemade own homemade Worcestershire sauce and you get takeout Chinese dumplings mm. honestly you mix that Worcestershire sauce with soy sauce Oh, my God. It's such a good dip. Oh, what, you, what makes you happy makes me happy. Mm. But the thing that's making me happy this week, gluten-free crackers. Oh, <laughs> hey. Now, I want to say before you say with this that neither <laughs> of us is, is celiac or we don't have a gluten intolerance. But they make me happy, too, so go ahead. <laughs> and there are basically two styles of gluten-free crackers. There's the kind that I've always been buying, which are really thick and crunchy, which are good. But the same weekend guests that ate the steaks with the Worcestershire brought a handful of boxes of the brand name was Absolute gluten-free crackers and they're super thin and they're, and they're super crunchy they are like matzah this is like the third time in this episode we've talked about matzah <laughs> and they're tapioca I based i just have a thing with matzah <laughs> tapioca is the main ingredient and they're addictive and i could eat the whole box in one sitting so Glu absolute gluten-free crackers are my thing making me happy. Yeah, I, I'm going to say I'm going to add on to Bruce's thing because they make me happy too. Actually, we eat a lot of gluten-free 
crackers. And again, neither of us needs to eat gluten-free. And the reason I like gluten-free crackers is by and large, they are far more crunchier mm -hmm. than standard crackers. They don't get soggy from humidity as much. And, you know, honestly, like I told you about my pizza, I like it incinerated. See, it's, it's all about crunch for me. And so gluten-free crackers, by and large, for me are crunchier. And so that, for me, is the taste thing. It's crunchier, and I prefer it. And so <laughs> off we go to gluten-free crackers every single time. So that is this episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We will be back next week with four more segments in our department store of a podcast. I think we were dating ourselves by calling it department store. You brought that up. I know, but I'm an old man. So I remember Sanger Harris in Dallas, Texas, remember, or Teiches. Or if we were really feeling flush and my dad had got a bonus, Neiman Marcus. Ooh, but that needless meant, markup. Needless markup. But that meant we were really flush that week. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you'll check us back next week check out our facebook group cooking with bruce and mark join there join the fun let us know how we're doing we'll let you know how you're doing and check out our youtube channel cooking with bruce and mark too for more cooking videos otherwise see you back next week for another department store